This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to Sam. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Extra Weekly Podcast. I'm your Samson Folk, and today a special episode and one that I will give a disclaimer for. As has been the case with virtually any civil rights or labor movement, the politics stem from leftist places. The NBA's wildcat strike in August was deeply rooted in civil rights, social justice, and labor power. Both myself and my guests supported the players in their wildcat strike, and our commentary surrounding it will be openly left-wing. If this conversation will only serve to frustrate you because you disagree with the left end of the spectrum, or if you think, hey, I like Samson's basketball opinions, but I would rather hear politics from a place I go to politics for, then this is fair warning that this podcast probably won't be up your alley. For anyone who's interested, thank you. And uh, I hope you enjoy the episode. My guest today, Abdul Malik, he writes at Jacobin Passage, Canadian Dimension. I've enjoyed his pieces immensely. I think they do a lot of the footwork and groundwork that you see trickle down to the conversation that ends up happening on Twitter in, let's say, a more short form. Here to talk about what happened with the Wildcat strike in August, the repercussions of it, how much progress has been made. Abdul, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm, uh, I'm making my way, not downtown, but just <laughs> anywhere I can, trying to keep the inertia of any movement I have, whether it's physical to stay in shape, work to propel my career, or emotionally to uh, satisfy all of the friendships and relationships I have in my life. It's just inertia trying to push myself forward. How about you? I feel that, you know, I have I have inertia in two of those three things. I'm not doing enough physical inertia right now, even though I should. Um, but like, yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of writing these days. It's a lot of just like working on myself, reading and, um, you know, just sort of like trying to better whatever I can do in quarantine, stuff like that, and also produce better work. Right. Like it's a uh, it's weird. It's weird being paid to write um, in any like medium or whatever, because it's just like you have perpetual imposter syndrome, but you can also see yourself getting better with like everything you publish, every piece you put out, every pitch you throw to people. It's like, oh, I'm I'm actually doing this. And it feels really, really strange. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's something where you sometimes you feel really lucky if that imposter syndrome matches up with how people are receiving your work, because sometimes you can do a better job and it just won't pop off like other things you've done and what's kind of expedient and is received really well by an audience and what's been really thorough and is kind of ignored by an audience. So even fighting imposter syndrome is like you see yourself making progression, but then your work doesn't hit as many people's, you know, eyelids eyelids, eyes, screens, whatever it might be, whatever medium they read or listen through. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're, you're progressing. I see you doing your thing and I'm a fan. 
Thank you. No, I appreciate that. You're you're also completely right on that, by the way, because like I just broke my first piece of like investigative journalism over the weekend, uh, which was actually sports related. It was about the Alberta government, like quietly giving the NHL four million dollars while cutting a whole bunch of stuff and also not talking about it, mentioning it publicly once. Um, and it's like I didn't it. I always forget with like actual like hard journalism, you're basically just reporting a fact that you found out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, giving it some context. It's like this took the least amount of time to write, but also popped off maybe the most or like second most of anything I've ever written. Is I don't know. How to, uh, like, yeah, I was like having a crisis after that for a bit. I'm like, this is what people want to read. Really? Not my thoughts, just the straight, just the straight facts. I was like lucky enough to, put on a page and it's like, Oh no, you, you found something that was in the public interest. And there's a way to like square it in your head or whatever. Right. Yeah. That's a uh, slander has really captured the eye of a lot of sports writing as well. It's a, it's a big part of the commentary now where I don't think it really used to be. So ga- engaging properly with slander where you can kind of uh, get a lot of readers or listeners, but also, you know, do you want that to be your brand? There's, you have to talk to the players eventually, you know, if you progress far enough, it's uh, interesting. But we're here to discuss a topic. And the thing that I find gets the most resistant off the start is the chasm that is felt between fans and players because of class, because they view them as millionaires, which, you know, in most cases they are, because they find it hard to identify with them. So the first thing I want to get your opinion on is why should millionaires be identified as labor like a steel mill would be? Why is it important to support them at the top end like that? And by not supporting the players union when they go on a wildcat strike for these types of important things, civil rights, social justice, labor power, are you unintentionally equipping the owners with more power? You absolutely are equipping the owners with more power. And I think it's important to recognize, like, you know, when we hear the word working class, we tend to think of like the way um, like a lot of the media has framed working class the last couple of years. Right. Which is like, yeah, like this idea of like a miner um, in West Virginia, you know, who's, uh, you know, got calloused hands and, you know, dirty face who goes into the, you know, the pit every day. And that person is like doubtless that person is working class. But like, you know, you could you could make $85,000, a year in a big city and have like a boss you hate um, and you might be like right on the edge of being fired every day and it still isn't enough to make rent in like the place you're living in. That person's also working class even though they like wear a suit and go to an office, right? Um, and with players especially, like I think there's a couple of things there. One is like the players fought very hard. The players union fought very hard for this, right? Like from the pension to the salaries they make the they negotiated this and what they're taking in is like a fraction of what the owners make uh like if you were to take like a regular workplace say you know domino's pizza or something and look at the wage divide between the person who's working you know in the kitchen there the manager who runs that place and sort of scale that up to like the nba player owner relationship you're getting you know something similar in terms of the scale of return um, which I think is is sort of super crucial to think about this in. And then also, like, you know, not everyone, you know this as well as I do, not everyone makes LeBron money, <laughs> right? Like, not everyone makes a max or a super max. And it's like, yeah, these players are paid well and they get a pension, but 
the very nature of how we interpret of how like sports is set up through, you know, stuff like the NCAA and, you know, streaming into sports is, is extremely predatory and, you know, you're destroying your body over a period of three to 10 to, you know, I guess sometimes longer if you're lucky years and you come out of it with like very few options on the other end. And you're, you're basically looking at this stuff like it's hazard pay for having nothing else in your career and like, destroying your body while you do it right like there's that epidemic of players uh who have started super early in like you know private basketball prep schools and stuff like that who already have like 50 year old man knees when they when they get to the league um like I've, i'm editorializing but like you know I'm, I'm very certain zion williamson his injury issues is like a, a great example of that <clears throat> um right yeah as far as, and I'm thinking about the divide, saying not everybody makes LeBron money, a point comes to mind that I would make is LeBron, and here's the thing, a guy like Solomon Hill who accepts a minimum contract, let's say, is, at least for, let's say, market value, is not worth the minimum contract. And this is not a comment on like anything he's actually worth, but playing the game of what they're worth. Solomon Hill is not worth a minimum contract in what he brings to a franchise, but Solomon Hill gets paid a minimum contract that is very high. That probably should not be attributed to the league or the owners. That should probably be attributed to LeBron James, who gets paid maybe like $36 million a year, but actually brings a much, much higher amount of value to the franchise. So the money... Probably it's more accurate to say the money comes out of LeBron's pocket and goes into his teammates rather than coming from the owner's pockets to pay the players who don't bring a whole lot of market value or fanfare to the game. Absolutely. And also without those players, without players like Solomon Hill, right, the league could not function, which I right. think is also worth 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 considering is like a lot of these people exist on the court. I mean, the spirit of what I'm saying, not not literally, but a lot of these people exist on the court so that people can come and watch LeBron play, right? They can come and watch Giannis play because no one goes to a game to watch Solomon Hill, but, you know, without a dozen Solomon Hills or, you know, two dozen or however many players of that stripe are in the league, you're not going to pay the same amount of money to go and watch, you know, uh, Giannis play by himself, right? With like one other player or two other players. It's like these people... They provide value by allowing the game to happen, by providing the mechanism in which we can go and watch the superstars and the players we're excited about, you know, even like invest in the storylines, not just individually, but the teams that we get invested in. Um, and they're workers, right? Like they're even look at the language of sports is they're, you know, players are literally bought and sold. And, you know, we, we, you know, the words we use around players, you know, in terms of like draft stock and athletics and stuff like that, um, sort of identify this sort of, you know, relationship of, you know, ownership. I think there's a lot of issues with, you know, the language of sports and sports drafting and stuff like that, that should probably be addressed, obviously not right now, but somewhere in the future. Um, but yeah, no, these guys can be cut at any time, waived at any time and left with nothing and just like sort of left out in the cold and all that money is hazard pay, right? The solution is is not that 
they should be making less. It's that everyone around them from the arena staff to the people in the, you know, who work the administrative jobs for the team to the people who work at the sports bars down the street from the arena should be. Um, that's the lesson we should be taking from the power of the NBPA in terms of it's like bargaining position. What they fought for is that like, you know what? It may seem weird because they're famous and they can do it, but anyone can unionize a workplace and fight for, more um and everyone should like in my opinion (laughs) and so let's touch on the idea of that having the players alienated from yourself in your mind identifying their paycheck as the difference between you rather than seeing maybe an allegory between yourself and late and them as far as labor power that you represent the worker in both cases how does taking the opposite stance, and not to be hostile to anyone who's listening who feels the other way, but just how does taking the other stance of saying, like, I just I don't feel like supporting a millionaire as they tell me what their politics are, for example, how does that affect their workplace down the down the line? Because I feel like it could have a trickle down effect if you see it in the light of media to to see it rejected like that. Um, sports is like maybe uh almost equally to politics, if not equally to, is perhaps the number one arena in the world in which power is articulated. Um, And like you see this with like Diego Maradona, right? And his passing last week, you see this like, you know, obviously with Muhammad Ali and Jesse Owens and you see it on the court. You see it with, with players, you know, sitting down, choosing, you know, to wildcat for games or, um, you know, in, in football, obviously, there's Kaepernick, or in basketball, there's Muhammad Abdul Rauf, um, right? Who, who basically said, "No, we're not going to do this," and that creates a ripple effect because, you know, a lot of people will say, "Well, they're just players; they're just paid to play. We're not there to hear their opinions." But what is like athletics and what is sports if it's not an articulation? And why do we get invested in it if it's not an articulation of like the peak of what? human excellence can be right and we we don't ever just think about these things in terms of pure athletics because like that's not how we individually are programmed we tend to only reject it when it's something we disagree with right we only tend to reject that idea when it's something we disagree with but we want to know that these like you know quite literally olympian gods that we see uh, on the court right whether it's the nba or the wnba we want to know that they're also good people and we want to, and we listen to what they have to say because we're so invested in like the, this like ideal of, of, you know, human achievement, human excellence they provide. Um, and I think that's sort of crucial to think about because like it or not, like, you know, someone can sit down and be cynical and be like, ah, they're not educated. They're not paid to have political opinions, but they have them and people listen to them. And, you know, education or their qualifications to have those opinions based on, you know, their lived experience and what they see in the world doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't, um, how, how do I phrase this? I'm just trying to think like it's, it doesn't erase the value of those opinions, right? It doesn't make those opinions any less worth worthwhile. Like that's a very conditional argument that people use because half the people who like reject what the players are doing or say they're just being paid to play. Like someone could make that same argument about their (laughs) opinions based on like their set of qualifications. Right. Which is equally unfair. I would argue. Yeah. Anybody should be able to say anything. And 
there is, you know, a level of, you know, some people are going to disregard you. Some people relative to what you do, what they know about you are going to put more stock into what you say. And as you say, looking at these players in the NBA, you know, you're, you're talking about things that have happened with the NHL, football, NFL, soccer, Diego Maradona, or football, I should say, as far as that stuff happening, they are Greek gods to us. They're mythical. They, they enter into these, you know, they, they are deified in some ways. And that's how we look at it culturally. And it's interesting to see, you know, how, like you said, when it's something we disagree with, it's just a write-off. But if they were to say something that was universally loved, that could be championed for the next 50 years and it could be manipulated. And not, not that anybody is Martin Luther King, but you see how right-wing politicians and left-wing po- politicians both pull quotes from Martin Luther King to apply to their own ideologies. That happens with athletes too. And that's, that's the scope of what they have. And so it, keeping their scope in mind, were you surprised at what was agreed upon between the players and the owners in the wake of the Wildcat strike? Um, I sort of hate that I wasn't surprised. I wanted to be surprised. Um, and it's like, it's like to give you a bit of background, like I've worked at a labor union for the last five years and now I'm transitioning into like writing full time, um, you know, and I guess that gives me like a very specific insight into this and, and maybe I can editorialize a bit better about, you know, behind the scenes and stuff like that. But, you know, you when it started, I was, I was having conversations with other people at the union, you know, we all sort of agreed it was probably going to end up where it did, where it was like, they're going to agree to some sort of nominal shift. There's going to be something like an agreement about a commitment to racial justice. Um, but there isn't going to be like, you know, any of the hard changes that we need to see around like the NBA's, um, you know, taking a much more active role in this sort of stuff, providing a, a larger degree of funding and just agreeing carte blanche to a larger platform to play in, or even better, just can't like putting the season on suspension again specifically so that there would be no focus on anything but what was happening uh, in, during the George, George Floyd uh, protests at that time, right? Which would have been like, and I love basketball. I never, I never want to see it go away, but like, you know, it's when a lot of players are saying there's some things that are bigger than basketball. Um, and a lot of them still weren't happy with, you know, what ended up happening. It is kind of sad to see. But at the same time, like, you know, the bubble exists, uh, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, the bubble existed specifically so that owners could uh, could cut their losses a little less on the season. Right. And to have that threatened again meant that they would be losing even more money and no one was going to let that happen. And, you know, again, you're talking about slander before, like I don't want to slander players because I think everyone was doing the best with the information they had and the way they saw it happening. Right. I, you know, maybe that's giving a lot of people too much credit, but like, yeah, I think that it wasn't surprising, but I wish it had been. (laughs) Were you surprised? Were you surprised that there were, conflicting reports that were constantly coming out that were either very pro NBA or very anti NBA. And what do you think? And maybe this is just too much to ask to speculate, but were you surprised at all that there was tons of conflicting reports because, you know, the game was starting to be played through the media. It seemed like. Uh, no, not at all. That's like a classic. That's like a classic, um, 
tactic that, you know, especially high profile wildcats and high profile labor issues are, you know, you'll get, uh, and the players to their credit, they have access to more media than like, you know, a healthcare worker striking at a hospital does. Right. But like, um, they're also competing with the machinery of ownership and the league who are putting out their own stuff. Right. Like, um, the stuff about like Pat Bev specifically, um, the stuff about LeBron and Kawhi walking out, how, and, you know, just capitalizing on the fact that everyone had a sense of where they needed to go, but there were disagreements on how to get there. And then they're blowing it out of proportion and suggesting that, Oh, everyone's in disarray. Right. And stuff like that. It's like, I mean, Yes, but that's like the nature of any labor dispute. That's something that you have to give people the time and space to work through. And, you know, I guess the spotlight on it made it really hard to do that. But, um, yeah, it's again, like if, if the player management relationship is, is a regular workplace magnified to the thousands, this is just another example of that, right? It's like the same stuff magnified to, you know, under a microscope where the whole world is watching and then that puts extra pressure on and people are just saying whatever, like even the, um, even the Rooks piece that came out, uh, last week, right. Even that had a completely different account from like what a lot of us were seeing and reading what, when it was happening. Right. Yeah. It's man, this is a really interesting conversation as far as how hard it is to get together and come together to achieve one thing, especially when you're going up against something that seems like a monolith, like the NBA. And so tangible progress that was made. What do you think that was? Because when I'm looking at things that came up short and when, you know, there was investigative reporting and journalism that went into where is all of the donations going from NBA front offices and not to generalize too much, but typically the donations of the owners were almost completely juxtaposed from what the players would want politically. And so when you have a class of owners that is trying to achieve things politically that are completely diametrically opposed to what the players typically want, what do you think that indicates? And are you worried that the players couldn't really, even with their immense power, correct the the way that that was going or do you think that that'll change going into the future i think it'll change going into the future because i think i think it's important to recognize that these things take time um in the same way that you know i i believe that america has made very little progress on the racial justice front since you know mahmoud abdul rauf chose not to not to stand for the anthem um and stuff like that like you know uh, a good you know, struggle one in the house of labor is not an immediate process. Um, and I think it, it involves players recognizing the power they had. And I think for the league, especially, and especially what happened with the wildcat, like this was step one. It's like, Oh, it's a recognition. Like we, we hold all the chips here, actually, you know, both, both in the court of largely public opinion in the court of making sure the bosses get money in the, you know, the, court of like making sure that the things we want to fight for using our platforms can be articulated. Like we hold the power here. And, you know, a lot of the younger players you saw almost universally were, uh, at least from the reports that came out were, uh, a, the ones pushing it, but B they're the guys who are going to be here, you know, five, 10 years from now. Right. Not the, 
like, you know, I, I don't want to call out LeBron specifically, not like he'll ever hear me slandering him, but like, you know, like I, I don't fault LeBron, but LeBron took an approach of someone who had the most to lose in all of this. Right. Um, and he stood to lose a lot monetarily compared to other players who also stood to lose a lot, but you know, they, you know, for a lot of them, they had more to gain. They had, you know, sort of a stronger hill to stand on. Um, and that it looks different when you're used to, you know, a, a huge paycheck, you know, LeBron wise through endorsements, through all this other stuff coming in, the idea of it drying up. Right. But like, yeah, like I think we're going to see a lot of changes. I think this was something I was trying to figure out. So the they amended the CBA, which means they didn't exercise the opt out clause. The NBPA did not, which means that bargaining is going to start up again, not this year, but later. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I was. Uh, this is the stuff that no one seems to report on, other than they agreed to an amended CBA, and it's like, okay, does that mean the opt-out clause was not exercised? Which I think it was not. Um, but you're going to see that come to the fore in bargaining too, right? When they start bargaining the CBA again, it's up to the players and the people the players elect, and and the head of the union, and you know all the processes of balloting and um, not balloting. Sorry if. Um, uh, surveying the players and stuff like that to say, well, what do you want to see a commitment from the NBA and the CBA? Um, but I also think for fans, it does involve a recognition that the owners are bad people. <laughs> you know I mean, like not universally, um, like, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to slander Larry Tenenbaum who, you know, is like a pretty harmless person, all things considered, but like, you know, um, uh, Dan Gilbert, uh, you know, helped build a prison uh, in uh, in Cleveland, right? Through the Quicken Loans guy who owns the Cavaliers. Like, um, there was a piece, a remarkable piece by Dave Zirin in The Nation last week where he talked about how, you know, the owner of the Detroit Pistons has a vested interest in the private prison industry, right? By running a, a very predatory prison telephone company. Like, um, you know, one of the owners of the Bucks is, uh, was, uh, a fundraising coordinator for Scott Walker, who, you know, is in my opinion, a vile, reprehensible person. Um, and, um, like single-handedly destroyed labor power, um, in Wisconsin. Right. So it's like, these are, and of course, like you don't even need to get into like the DeVos family <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, so it's like, yeah, it's, it's worth recognizing like these billionaire owners who again, make so much more than the players ever have. And honestly ever will, um, have a vested interest in like perpetuating systems that are profitable to them. And those systems are often completely contradictory to the ideas of like racial justice, worker justice, or just like the concept of justice in general. Um, and I think that's worth recognizing. Like you can love a team and understand that, you know, the team that you love, the, the, you know, 15 players are bigger than maybe the organization they play for, or, you know, the company that owns the uh, the jerseys they play in, right? Like, I don't, I love the Raptors because I'm from Toronto. I, you know, love that team. But when I think about the Raptors, I don't think about, you know, I think a little bit about the history, but I think about the players on the floor, right? Like, I think about how invested I am in them as like people and as a cohesive unit, and how much I love to see them play and have fun together or like follow their their lives and antics off the court, right? I never think of, of Larry Tenenbaum. And if they, if they walked because 
nothing Larry would ever do this, but if they walked because Larry was treating them like, like garbage, right. I'd be like, hell yeah, you should walk. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think it, I think the players are also waking up to that, right? Like no one in that business, especially is there to be your friend. They're there to make, uh, except for other players, like your agents are there to make money off you. The, the owners are there to make money off you. Like it's, it's you, your teammates and the coach, right? It's the frontline staff that you work with day in and day out. It's uh, it's interesting. I don't think anybody really identifies eras by who owned a team at a certain. Unless things go really, really wrong, then they're like, <laughs> "Oh yeah, buddy over here." Like, fuck. Unless the team you're a Celtics forever. fan, actually, Celtics fans <laughs> seem to love love the the ownership eras of their teams for some reason. Yeah, I don't know. There, Boston is it's completely its own thing. There is such a interesting dichotomy of how they like things and why they like things and it's it's very unique in the scope of america and especially you know it's for that reason that boston has this hallowed i guess what would be reputation in sports even though it's it's outsized for the market that it is anyway um i'll I'll skip ahead then in your piece watching football in trump land sports and the populist right Good piece. I just read it today. But I appreciate that. Yeah. You highlight how the Sask Party and Brad Wall, and I'm from Saskatchewan. I am well aware of Brad Wall and not a fan. They position themselves in an allegorical fashion to the beloved football team, the Rough Riders. Everybody from Saskatchewan has heard of the Rough Riders. They're a big deal. Or they also position themselves as an allegory to the junior national hockey team, which you actually made a point of quoting in the in the piece. In doing so, they engender political support that is more than likely unearned. Because in what way are they al- an allegory for the sports team going on? It's it kind of seems insane. Are sports a placeholder for this type of manipulation? And you did kind of touch on this saying that maybe sports are the number one power for this type of thing. I wonder, are they unique for a political battleground? And if so, if it's not going to be replicated in any other medium, how does the labor, the players, how do they seize it in a more permanent kind of situation? Sports are are wholly unique in in the sense that, like, you know, no one reads no one reads tabloids to the degree that which they follow sports. Right. Like you couldn't put this on actors or you know other media personalities and like obviously there are a lot of actors with great politics who do great work in sag and actra and the acting unions you know and and actors a lot of the times they're workers too right but like sports specifically um because of its nature is like you're watching athleticism you're watching a degree of skill right like it it to a lot of people it feels like the remuneration that players make feels unearned but people will not hesitate to tell you uh, i'm trying to think of how to frame this better like yeah to to a lot of people it will feel unearned or whatever but like they still engage with it because these people are really good at what they do and they work hard at what they do and they've they're really skilled at what they do and you look at that you know you look at a good player on the court and you're like or in any sport and you're like oh you can pick them out from a crowd because they're just that good Right. It's like it goes back to this idea of like capturing the imagination. Right. Just seeing someone who's just so good at this thing that 
you know, hypothetically, anyone should be able to do a lot of sports, right? But these people have made it, have made it the best they can be and are the best, you know, someone could ever be or in the top 1% what they could ever be for that. And I think like that combined with, you know, the, the backgrounds of players and the media's obsession with, with, you know, um, you know, players, uh, hard upbringings or whatever, you know, you always got to find a story behind the player because just looking at the games can oftentimes be really boring, right? That's like sports journalism 101. And it's like, yeah, like I think that sports, I don't think you could emulate this in any other medium. I think that sports has the power to bring so many people together under this idea of like shared unity and its regionality specifically is something that you don't see in like other mediums like cinema, like TV, right? Like, Oh, Canada has a TV show. That's cool. But like the whole country doesn't stop and watch Shit's Creek. The whole country stops and watches the Raptors play in the finals. Um, and, and because of that, because of those like very specific, you know, quirks of, I guess, watching sports, its ability to unite cities, countries, regions, uh, because of the people on the court being this like, you know, model of excellence where you see them for who they are, not them pretending to be something else. Yeah, it has a it has a unique power that I don't think can be eclipsed or captured by anything else, and that's probably one of the reasons sports are still so dominant, right? Like majority of cable companies that run sports are the reason. Like sports are the one thing that streaming hasn't taken over yet. That's why a lot of cable companies are still in business because they still have live sports, right? People are willing to pay for that, um, and the players need to seize it. I think by recognizing it, right? Like the union needs to do a much stronger job of, of letting the players know they have that power, and that without them, the the mechanism of the league cannot function. Because oftentimes, you know, you're you're treated as disposable. Like you know, you see us all the time with like you know. Um, uh, college stars being brought into the league and washing out or like, you know, being cut, you, you're always being told, you know, if you're just not, you're good enough here, if you're not going to be good enough there and you're going to get cut and you, you know, want to stay, stay the course and like, don't rock the boat. And like, you know, keep working hard and you'll make it. But like, there's more of them than they are of the owners. Right. And there's a lot of skilled players there who still have internalized that, you know, it's an unfortunate fact of the business. Um, and I think that, you know, stuff like the Wildcat obviously wakes players up to that, but they need to have a more active role in being like, you know, we're not just asking for, you know, a couple of extra hundred thousand dollars here or there. We're asking for a lot more and we're able to get a lot more. Um, and we've seen this like go well and both good and bad with um, lockouts and stuff like that in the past. Um, I think the situation is a little different now. I think that both uh, the players have a lot more control of their own narratives because there's a lot way more ways to get those narratives out there. Um, and basketball has also expanded. Um, it's expanded well beyond the NBA. Um, and there's lots of people looking to invest, <laughs> right? And that means that the players have a unique amount of power. Uh, you know, we, we're in what? We're in the player empowerment era, right? That should tell you everything you need to know about oh, no, they could just get up and take this if they wanted to, but that involves more work um, more work on, on the players and the union. It involves them having to actually get out and organize and have those conversations and make sure that everyone understands that, yeah, there's a lot to lose, but there's also so much more to gain that's both materially and for basketball, right? Like, and a great example, the WNBA, their latest contract is awesome, <laughs> You know, they 
their salaries jumped up. They no longer have to share hotel rooms, which was crazy that they ever had to do that to begin with. They got like mat leave. They got childcare built into the contract. Like it was, and it should have been bigger news. It was a miraculous contract. And people always love to talk about the fact that like, you know, WNBA, it always loses money. It shouldn't exist. Well, you know, all that dumb bullshit you hear frequently, right. About like the WNBA, um, discounting the fact that's a really fun league to watch. It's like my instinct. And I don't know this as a fact, but I'm going to editorialize, you know, what's worse than, uh, than, you know, them getting locked out or anything is the optics of WNBA ownership saying we're shutting down the WNBA, right. Or the optics is saying we're locking out all these women for saying, we want to have our own hotel rooms rather than double bunk it. Right. And it's like, you can leverage that into so much and they did and they fought for it and they've been leading the charge in so many of these things that it really should start bouncing back to the NBA proper. Um, Cause you know, especially the NBA is supposed to set the bar for this. Uh, the WNBA has, um, and it's, it's now time for the NBA to like follow suit in that, right. And see what more can we gain, especially on the racial justice front for a league that's, you know, obviously majority black. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting. There's an intersection in the points you made in the, in the way of George Hill, a guy who was a big part of spearheading the wildcat strike, a, a huge voice for the bucks as they went, moved through that. And, obviously a huge voice in that locker room. The players value George Hill immensely. Reporting came out today that indicated he was a big part of trying to get Bogdan Bogdanovich to the Bucks, And when that fell through, George Hill was traded as well. So it's that there's so much going on with the team and so many guys can be viewed as so important. But that is almost guaranteed to just never be communicated to ownership and decision makers. And regardless of how you, of the types of feelings and emotions you engender in your teammates and the type of loyalty and chemistry you add, a lot of that isn't factored in. And to be quite honest, that's dehumanizing. And that's, you know, it's a, a tough look. As far as you also talked about, you use the term bootstrap ideology in your, in your piece that I referenced earlier. You also talked about hardships as far as upbringing related to athletes. How does the media kind of navigate covering those stories? Because I think some athletes want that story to be told. They feel a sense of accomplishment to come out of it. How, do, how does the media cover those types of stories without fetishizing pain, like misery and hardships from the people who are coming up in the league? It seems like a very tough thing to navigate. It is because like, you know, again, sports journalism is, is basically creating, it's like seeing, going to a place, seeing someone, you know, score 20 points and then saying, okay, the story can't be that this person scored 20 points. We need to know more about this person. What, what makes it special that they scored 20 points, right? Like people who are, who are rich and privileged and, and skilled at things doesn't, speak to like a normal person like it certainly doesn't speak to me right that's probably one of the reasons i like don't watch polo um or stuff like that right um because there's nothing interesting about a skilled polo player you know you know some british dude or whatever uh apologies if you like polo samson <laughs> um but but yeah i think a big part of it is sports journalism has as much of a responsibility as um as the players and leagues should have 
right? In terms of making sure that these things are not, they're not seen as like paradigms of hard work. And I mean, these people do work hard. They shouldn't have to work this hard to have these opportunities, right? They shouldn't have to be like, I think I, I, you know, I think the odds of making it to the NBA are, they're basically as low as your odds of, of winning the lottery, right? Like they're so infinitesimal and like, of course I heard, you know, Chris Boucher got a bag um, and I was so happy for him, right? Cause this guy used to be homeless. He luck, he literally won the lottery, but it's like, you know, the first thing he talks about is like, I don't want my mom to, to work anymore. And it's like, that's great. But you know, there's tens of thousands of other Chris Boucher's out there. Right. So it's like framing, it's framing these success stories as like, you know, individual accomplishments and something you should be happy people for, but against a backdrop of systemic failure. Um, and I think it's important to sort of isolate that, isolate that when you talk about people's success stories, right? Like, don't just ask them about themselves. Ask them about the people who they grew up with. Ask them about the people who are still struggling. Ask them what their neighborhood's still like. Ask them, you know, not just are you going to change it, but, you know, what what is your team doing to give back to similar neighborhoods in those cities? How can you push that, right? Like, it's the responsibility of sports media to talk about these success stories in a broader context because sports is never just about sports, right? Like it's never just, you know, sports, uh, sports are oftentimes the least interesting thing about sports, right? And it's like, you know, a, a lot of sports media. And I think I will say Toronto sports media is awesome. And like 99% of it has actually been so good with uh, conversations about racial justice, Terrence Davis, the bubble, um, sort of addressing systemic issues. That's not something you see in a lot of other uh, basketball media, right? But like, um, yeah, like it's 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 you know a lot, of, especially some of the big corporations who I will not name. But like, you know, some of these big corporations and some of the larger sports media enterprises never ever um, touch on this sort of stuff, right? Like they, they keep it focused on this. Like if you work hard, you can achieve anything mandate. That's like obviously untrue. Um, you know, there's probably hundreds, if not thousands of basketball prodigies who will by both circumstance and, you know, conditions of where they're born will never be able to succeed. Um, even though they might be the best player of all time. Right. And that should never even have to be a condition of them succeeding in the first place. And, you know, framing sports is like a microcosm of, struggle of justice of class politics and making sure that that sort of stuff is always you know maybe not foregrounded if you're focusing on an individual player but it's there in the background that you know it's there right and i think there's interesting ways to articulate that um but i think i genuinely think that's like where good local media does a lot of the work and hopefully that trickles upwards <laughs> into into some of these larger larger media enterprises right like you know you can watch some 24 hour sports channels and just never hear a single thing that goes outside of the realm of like, it, you know, it's so predatory to be like, you know, when someone's drafted to have a graphic pop up on screen being like their dad left and their mom died when they were 13 and now they're drafted like seventh. It's like, dude, this sucks. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. like that, do not realize how sick that is to both like use as a point as something that defines this person, you know, that, in their inner life and also sort of what does that communicate to everyone watching who's in a similar situation who's still you know who's like on the brink of poverty and can't afford their insulin right 
Yeah. Like you just weren't good enough. Yeah. Yeah. And as far as we saw it happen a few times in the bubble where there's a sideline reporter who basically communicates, how did you turn the tragedy into a good sports performance? And that's, that's horrific. That's quite honestly, it's, it's terrible. And maybe the most important thing that happened, and this is, you know, at the start of ignoring the footwork that happens with every movement and the people who are constantly, you know, actually putting in a lot of work. One of the biggest things is word of mouth. And what the wildcat strike does is it allows for us to have this conversation. Hopefully there's some people that enjoy the conversation that feel like they learn some things about labor specifically from you since you are well-versed in it. And maybe it makes them view it a little bit differently. Maybe it helps them view the players a little bit differently. Not only that, but it makes it so that, as you said, kind of getting away from the bootstrap ideology is players should be more comfortable asking the owners, what are you doing for the community where I come from? And so should reporters, journalists be asking the players and the owners themselves. It's just everybody being more conscientious of these types of things. Like it isn't an accomplishment in the grand scheme of things. Like for the person who makes it out of the difficult situation. That's a great accomplishment for you, but it's not an accomplishment for humanity until that place is made better. And so just as you said, highlighting that seems like the the best way to go forward and having more people be conscious of it. And knowing you'll never settle, right? Like if the goal of journalism, you know, ostensibly journalism is there to report the facts, but more specifically, it's there to hold power accountable, right? And somewhere along the line, sports journalism sort of (laughs) A, a lot of sports journalism, again, not painting everything with a broad brush, but, right? But like some of the bigger sports outlets sort of lost that. Um, and, you know, like sports is, again, the primary arena in which power is articulated. Like it's big money. Nothing should ever be good enough, right? Like until it's an active part of making the world a better place with the amount of revenue and money it generates, like it's up to the media, it's up to the players, and it's up to the fans especially to be like, actually, no, like, like this should be something that's good for us and good for our neighborhood and good for our town, not just pride, but like it should be, it should make that like material difference, right? Like there, there should be a day where one day we see a sports arena being built in a city and not be like, God damn it. This is going to like gentrify the neighborhood, drive people out of their homes, be paid for with tax dollars. Like it should be like, Oh, this means that the team is going to invest so much in making sure that the housing around the arena is affordable and that fans can still come and that like, you know, it's actually going to be an integral part of what makes a community vital. And we've rarely, if ever see that, you know, and that sucks. That's like really unfortunate. (laughs) Yeah. To see the vast amount of wealth improve the situation of wherever they're playing rather than satiate, you know, energy that might be expelled elsewhere i think that's if that if there's a paradigm shift as far as that goes and it's stemmed by not just the wildcat strike but the work that went into it which i'd like to ask you about a little bit after this but if that's where it ends up that is a massive accomplishment and so you brought up abdul Rauf, you brought up uh, muhammad ali kaepernick i believe as you wrote in your piece that it was on the, I guess, technically the anniversary of, of uh, Kaepernick's first instance of kneeling, and that caught the attention. And you talked about something earlier about how little progress has been made from Abdul Rauf. He obviously expelled, like he just, that was the end of his career, basically. And Kaepernick 
functionally the same thing happened to him, but it was after the first black president, you know, was was in America. It was after there was supposed to be so many steps taken that people could express how they felt and that different groups of people were more empowered now. How do you feel about looking into the future after this wildcat strike has happened now that, you know, now that we're a few months away from it? I think I think it was a vital point. I think that I think that players need to understand. I think they do understand it's on them now, right? Like Adam Silver in October came out and said, I think we're gonna move the racial justice stuff to off the court, right? I think he said that in like a an article on like October, somewhere early October and stuff like that, which I'm like, really, Adam, yeah, that's not a good look. You know what I mean? That's like you know, people expected this to happen. They they expected, you know, ownership in the league expected players to be like sated by this, right? Like by this like small action. It's like, oh, we turned like the elections over and Biden won. It's like, you know, a lot of people, that's a good thing. And I think for a lot of people, it'll feel like, you know, the pressure is a, a little bit more off in terms of what in terms of what. uh what the world felt like, you know, a couple of months ago. And, you know, I can't fault them for that. But, you know, under Obama, under Trump, under Biden, under any president, you know, black men are still being shot on the streets, right? Um, and women of color and trans women of color are still at like a much higher risk of violence um, than, you know, most other marginalized groups. Uh, and those are just like facts, right? And like, I, that's also probably one of the reasons that the Terrence Davis thing frustrates me so much because like Maasai should know firsthand, like, you know, you should know firsthand what it's like to be in that sort of danger, obviously. Right. And it's like, you know, you can't take a stand for just black men. You know, you have to understand that this, this has an impact on a lot of other, other groups that, you know, aren't the ones just in front of you. Um, I know it's like a league issue, you know, there's a lot of trouble with the union there for obvious reasons, but like, but like, yeah, the players need to understand it's in their hands because no one's going to do it for them. And, you know, it's gonna, it's going to be really alienating. It's going to be very easy to give up when you, when you staked your claim on an election and the election happens and the outcome you wanted happens and these things keep happening. Right. And a lot of these guys are young. A lot of them, you know, didn't see, <laughs> You know, sort of. I think for a lot of for a lot of people like me, like the disappointment that came with the Obama years um, in terms of progress on the racial justice front um, and stuff like that, and how how Obama's election didn't trickle down to a lot of communities and and to marginalized groups and didn't really stem the the violence against people of color. Um, and they're going to have to make sure that 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 they're bringing that in there every day. Right. And that they're educating each other on what it means to bring that in there every day and what it means to to push it. Um, and to be honest, like I, I, a lot of people I know in my in my sphere will call call me an optimist. But like I genuinely think that's going to happen. Um, I genuinely believe it. <laughs> I think it's an inevitability. Um, and like, you know, if you can't like if you can't be optimistic and, and put your faith in workers, like what else can you do? <laughs> right. Um, and ownership is just there to make sure that these things get dealt with quickly. And it's like, it's up to media players, fans again, to, to keep pushing each other as like this triangle to be like, actually, no, it should be, <laughs> you should be able to push it further. And now is the time to do it. Right. Cause like also I mean Trump's out, but 
who's the next guy, right? Even if you're a big Biden fan, like the next guy after Trump might just end up being 10 times worse. And you need to be ready for what that brings. You need to be ready for the sort of violence that will empower um, against you and against people you love. I think another good point to make, especially since you brought up Maasai and what's happened regarding him, is that Maasai has spoken on many podcasts and talked about having such a close relationship with Adam Silver that personally you would have to expect that Adam Silver, without any optics between he and Maasai, said, I trust you completely in this situation. You have my back. I have your back, et cetera, all the platitudes or whatever it might be. And then in an interview, I believe, with NBA TV, I'm not sure if it's NBA TV, but I'm concrete of what Adam Silver said. He said that Maasai needs to be more responsible in not putting himself in those types of situations. So even when Maasai was so, he was done so dirty by so many different people and most notably by the police officer who, you know, was violent towards him for seemingly no reason. Maasai shoved back. Who cares, right? Like a police officer is acting that way. Everything else is off the table. And Adam Silver, who he's supposed to have a close relationship with in the media, throws him under the bus and I guess assumes some amount of culpability on Masai's behalf, it doesn't really make sense. And it's just being able to push against the idea that we have to preserve. And the NBA, Adam Silver, in that moment was probably thinking, I have to preserve some sort of relationship or tangential thing with police officers and law enforcement and that kind of stuff. And through what is, I can only assume, a friend under the bus in doing so, when that friend, just because it was against the politics of that time, was was not in the wrong. It's uh, I think that's a good point. Is that it's it's tough, and more people need to be accountable in doing stuff like that. And like with with Masai too, like you know, it doesn't matter what. And Masai, you know, as we saw in the video, didn't do anything, right? But like, um, in what world, even if Masai did, which he didn't, like, in what world are the police officers' actions justified, right? Like, it's still like even by Adam Silver assuming any responsibility on Masai's part, are you like, you know, just a suggestion that police officers are justified in their use of undue force is, is absolutely like, it's, it's not just, you know, stupid. It's also inhuman, right? It's like a completely dehumanizing view to take on like the idea of violence or justice or accountability for any party in any altercation. It's like, that's the sort of stuff where it's like, yeah, you know, I I love Masai Ujiri. Masai Ujiri took the Raptors to the promised land and, you know, he he's pushed back against the stuff really well. Um, he's also, I think, constrained deeply by the limits of like his position, right? Where he's in this unique spot where he's, you know, I'm sure they love him, but he's he's very at the at the whim of like Raptors ownership, right? No matter how much freedom they, they give him. Um, and he's also like an intermediary between in a lot of ways between the team and the players' opinions and the league. Um, and he got put at the center of this and, you know, he, he got put where, you know, people usually of his position and his wealth are not usually put and he handled it like a champ. But, you know, that should be more of an impetus to, to keep pushing the envelope with the players, not with ownership and not with, you know, not with the league. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, he's he's the most popular Torontonian. <laughs> I mean, like he's the most popular guy in town. He has that power and he, you know, he has that leverage. Um, 
which like, you know, I go back to Terrence Davis thing too. It's like, you know, I understand the union exists for a reason. And these are sometimes the difficulties with the unions or stuff like the Terrence Davis investigation, stuff like that. Right. Which is like understandable, but I really wish they had been a bit more outward about, you know, proper, like directed response to it. Just saying like, you know, this is what we're doing. This is what we're going to do. If, if at the very least the facts pan out, just like a roadmap for what's going to happen because like they're allegations, but you know, my instinct tells me they're probably to the, those allegations will probably pan out into, you know, something more real and stuff like that. Um, and it's like, I, I feel like the Raptors would do well to just, you know, take a hard stance on it now and just say, you know, if this is true, this is what we're going to do, right? Like the fact that they haven't been able to comment and stuff like that is really frustrating. And that's also up to the players, by the way, to make sure that they put clauses in that contract to allow dispensations for when stuff like domestic violence happens to uh, give but like teams uh, more flexibility around how they handle those situations in a way that's actually not harmful. Agreed. Well, Dul, before we get out of here, uh, are there any points you'd like to make? We're almost at an hour and we've discussed labor extensively. I've genuinely have learned things from you and uh, especially around the edges of things I might not have known fully. And you've You've been salient in expressing some of these opinions. Is there anything else you think the the audience or I should know about? Uh, no, I appreciate that a lot. Actually, I always feel like an idiot when I'm asked to talk about smart stuff because I usually, you know, come in and just like I know riff about something dumb when I guest on podcasts. So this has been really nice and refreshing. Um, I think I think if I could leave people with one thing um, before I do any plugs, it's I think everyone should have a more active interest in stuff like um, the NBA uh, collective agreement negotiations and even look at what's happening at the NHL right now uh, where the the league has really stabbed players in the back uh, in a whole bunch of ways through like, I, I forget the term for it. They're not deferrals, but they're basically like deferred payments and a bunch of other stuff. Um, that's like really going to hurt players at the bottom and really affect the outcome of like labor uh, in the NHL. Um, and it's that sort of stuff that I think people should really be paying attention to because it does have not just a material impact on the livelihoods of players who, you know, everyone should be invested in the welfare of players because you watch them and they bring you so much joy and you should, you know, definitely make sure that look at them and be like, yeah, they're taken care of. And these are, you know, your heroes. These are the people you have these deep parasocial relationships with. Um, but also it does trickle down to other places like the, the wildcat strike was so visible and such a big deal. And everyone looked at it and saw it. It's like, wow, a ton of people overnight learned what a wildcat strike was. That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, um, and we should be continue to look at these. These are the people who have the best bargaining position. There's a lot of lessons to be learned about how to build power in your place and, you know, fire your bad boss and, you know, push back against the stuff in your workplace that you don't, necessarily like or love right and um you know just in the way that we take lessons of excellence from from players we can also take lots of lessons around you know how we how we build dignity for ourselves in our workplace um yeah i think that's that's sort of the crucial crucial stuff oh that's as good a way uh, i think uh it's better than i would have been able to put it i'm i'm happy you've been here to express it in that type of way before we get you out of here 
and myself out of here and the listener out of here. Uh, the floor is yours, mate. Plug away, uh, direct the people to where they should be reading, listening, learning, etc. Um, the big place to find me is on Twitter uh, at Socialist Raptor. Um, I'm slowly trying to like con my way into Raptors sports media. <laughs> like just, you know, if I tweet enough about the Raptors and write enough things in non-Raptors related media, maybe I'll be able to like work my way in there somehow. But no, I write a lot about politics and sports um, for a lot of publications. So you can follow me yeah, on Twitter at Socialist Raptor. Um, and I also have a new podcast uh, coming out on it starts January 3rd, I think, is when the first episode drops. Uh, it might be unpaywalled on January 13th. But you can follow that on Twitter, at OffCourtPod. Uh, it's called the OffCourt Podcast. And it's a podcast about the political economy and history and, like, niche stories of sports, which um, sounds boring, but it's really not. It's It's like sports stories for people who are like interested in like, you know, all the politics of sports and what happens behind the scenes. So like our first episode um, is on dunking and the history of black capitalism, like how dunking became a product and not like a form of athletic expression for black athletes. Um, we have another episode on like cricket and the role that cricket, the sport had in like, decolonizing India and helping get the British out of India and helping it become a country. Um, yeah, a bunch of stuff like that. We have an episode on Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, which I will hundred percent say is a banger or I think, yeah, the other one I'll, I'll just quickly mention is like, why are there no, why are black people being forced out of baseball and like the conditions of the sweatshops that, um, the MLB runs in South America that like literally, kill players um and like create these horrible conditions by which they like mass produce players but only one makes it to the mlb um and stuff like that that it's really exciting stuff and it's super well researched and me and my co-host have spent the last four months plus the one coming up working on it and i'm really excited for people to hear it um it's going to be entirely free we're releasing it on a 10-day paywall lock but there will be no episodes podcast at least for the first season that no one can't listen to for the low low price of zero dollars so yeah follow it on twitter at off court pod the Twitter's kind of dead right now but it's going to come alive uh in the week or so leading up to leading up to when the podcast officially releases well, you heard it here. Free 99 for a podcast. Can't get a better deal. As Hell for yeah. myself, yeah. As for myself, listener, I'm a huge fan of Abdul's work. Reading it and listening to, well, and just being kind of privy to his, his Twitter space, the opinions are so well-researched. He's thorough, intelligent, and a lot of the points he makes, I identify with. If you find you identify with me, not just as far as like sports, but if politically you found anything at least somewhat enlightening during this podcast, I think you'll really, really enjoy his work. And as far as I know him, a stand-up guy and somebody who is just swell to support. So uh, I feel like that's a good way to end the podcast. How do you feel, Abdul? No, I appreciate that a lot. Thank you so much. It's always, again, I always feel like an idiot when I write or talk about things. So it's nice that people find it, you know, find it interesting to hear. It's always like a good feeling. <laughs> so, you, know, you yeah. just, you know, you just throw these things into the void and hope someone hears it, right? That's uh, the practice of what uh, we're all kind of getting into here. But listener, 
that's it from me. That's it for Abdul. I'm glad you enjoyed it if you did. And if you didn't, ah, shucks. That's that's disappointing, I guess. But <laughs> whether you're getting into this in the morning or at night, a huge thank you to Abdul for coming on and uh, letting us listen to some of his opinions and some of the facts that he's able to provide with this insight. But as I said, whether you're getting into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye. All the best.